Beloved congregation, would you read with me again in Matthew 22? And we'll read from verse 4 to the beginning of verse 7. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. What is sometimes said in Reformed churches that sermons ought not to be directed primarily to the unconverted. And the argument would proceed something like this. This is a holy congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That an essential part of any congregation is that it be composed of true believers who are those who are certainly capable of receiving the instructions of the word of God. And so these are to be those who are addressed, at least primarily addressed. Where a word is to be spoken to those who are apart from Christ, and it is perhaps to be done in passing and that quickly. But I suppose I've not been persuaded by that point of view. Let me give you a few reasons for it. One is that the plain teaching of the Word of God is that wherever there is a gathering of believers with their children, we can not assume that each one is a partaker of the Lord's grace, that each one is passed from death unto life. Indeed, the tenor of the Lord Jesus Christ's own, beer, own parables, as this one we read makes so abundantly plain, there are hypocrites among them. Hypocrites, even those who may profess to be true Christians and yet are strangers unto the grace of Jesus Christ. Deceivers of others, perhaps even deceivers of themselves, but they have not deceived God. I also see it in the heart and character of our Savior Christ himself. Was he not the one who left the ninety and nine sheep to pursue after the one that had wandered? Given this, how can we object to a message which would specifically search out among a congregation those in their midst who are yet Strangers to the Savior. But perhaps it's also most personal as I reflect upon my own life and per- reflect upon the messages that I sat under prior to coming to faith, prior to passing unto salvation and growing more aware of the desperate need of those who were outside of Christ. I, I found myself wishing 
that I'd been spoken to more directly. I found myself wishing that surely it would have been profitable if more had been said more directly to me in my presumption and willful blindness about the need to be truly converted. And well, suppose we were, were to discover after searching it out anew without a question that all were saved within this congregation, that all here were true partakers of the Lord Jesus. Suppose that we knew but there was but one. That there was one who had not truly believed in the Savior. Could we object at that point to reasoning and pleading with them? Suppose we knew who that person was who was not a Christian, and we knew that they were in the terrible situation of a lost eternity apart from getting serious with the Lord. Would we not set aside everything else on our day? Would we not say, we don't just need an hour-long sermon, we need to spend the whole day in prayer and fasting and pleading with this one, that he or she would turn and live. Well, I find myself, as I come to this portion of our series through the parable of the wedding banquet, and I see this portion of verse 7, but when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. Seeing as it speaks not only of the wrath of the king here upon those who mistreated his servants and, and murdered them, but also those who despised his invitation to the wedding feast. I see that certainly a prominent part of this text is the wrath of God for those who are unconverted. The wrath of God for the unconverted. This is not a worthy subject for us to consider. It is in the word of God. It must be spoken of. The wrath of God for the unconverted. In the first place, let's consider God's awareness when his gospel is despised. God's awareness when his gospel is despised. Children, I'm sure you remember this story that we've been learning about. Jesus spoke this story just two days before he was crucified. It's very important to understand. You remember, don't you? There was a great big wedding feast, not just put on by anyone, but by a great king. And it was a wedding feast for his own son, the son of the king. And as everything had been prepared, the oxen and the fatlings had been killed and all of the delightful delicacies of this feast had been laid forth. The only thing that was needed was the guests, the guests to come to the wedding feast. And so the king in his palace with all of his authority commands his servants to go out into his realm 
and to tell them you are invited. You are bidden to this feast. Everything is ready. Everything is prepared. And you remember how we discussed last time, how they go out through the countryside and shock, horror, upon receiving this wonderful honor of an invitation to the king's son's wedding feast. They treat it as though it's unimportant, as though it can be ignored, as as though it was something that was utterly optional. They go to their farm, they go to their business, and even some, some would spitefully treat these messengers and even kill them. The next thing that Jesus says in verse 4 is this, But when the king heard and heard thereof, he was wroth. So there is the king, and he's in his palace. And he is not ignorant of how these people in his realm have treated this invitation. No, word gets back to him. He hears about it, and he knows, and he is filled with rage. He is filled with wrath. A great anger wells up in him. There is the parable. There is the earthly picture. And what is the spiritual meaning? Well, you remember children, don't you? Who is this king? What does he represent in Jesus' story? Well, he represents, well, he represents God. God and all of his power and might, he is aware, aware of when we despise this invitation, not just to a feast in earthly food, but a feast of spiritual nourishment and joy and fellowship. The great gospel feast The holding forth of the gospel in this sweet invitation to sinners to receive Christ, to receive Christ and his salvation. And it says particularly that God, he is aware, aware of when those who hear his gospel despise him. Perhaps we should add something like, He is aware, as it were, or so to speak. We speak as as men and women, as mere creatures of a king who is not merely a human being, who takes an information, uh, as it were, through senses and through memory and through investigating the matter. Now, the wisdom of God is altogether greater than that, is it not? God knows all things from the beginning. He knows us all together. And nothing can escape his notice. His awareness is comprehensive. Whereas we might hear a report about something that was said or something that was done, and actually we only have a small part of the picture, and so we utterly distort the facts of the matter. God is not that way. He understands everything about everything. It's all recorded in the great book of 
his infinite mind and wisdom. Everything that happens, he is aware of. And so you, you he is aware of. You who we shudder to say with mourning and with sadness are unconverted this morning. God is aware of you. And he is aware in particular of every single time he has invited you unto his great wedding feast. He's aware of the earliest instruction you received from your mother or father where you heard of his blessed son and what he had done for sinners. He's aware of the years and years of instruction, of nurture, even catechism and the unfolding of the riches of his gospel. He's aware that you've heard of what happens to those who die without Christ. There is a hell and a judgment awaiting for all the ungodly. For we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. He's aware of every single sermon that you have sat under, under various preachers with various personalities and various levels of communication ability, but through and in it all has been the voice of God speaking to you, striving with you, reasoning with you, pleading with you. Why will you die, sinner? I have no delight in the death of the wicked, but that they turn and live. God is aware of each single time this perhaps made an impression upon you. Perhaps on this occasion or that occasion you heard the word of God. It made an impression upon your soul. And in those fleeting moments after you left the sanctuary, something came to your mind about the desperate need that you had, that maybe this was not just so many words, but there actually is a conversion unto Christ. There actually is a passing from death to life. And whatever that may be, I do not know it. I do not have it. And so maybe there is anxiety. Maybe there is worry. But soon after, suddenly the conscience and the mind is soothed with the sweet sayings of the devil who creeps in and says, this is not so serious. Think about this or that other thing. Crack a joke or make a smile or think about some ungodly entertainment. Think about something else. Don't think about that one thing that the preacher was on about the need to be converted, the need to receive Christ, the need to be found in him. And so it is that however long it may have been you have sat under preaching, you have quenched the Holy Spirit. You have suppressed the truth of the gospel. You still lie in a state of sin, of condemnation and death. And God is aware of it. God is aware of it. So it is that the church of Jesus Christ, where it receives uh, people into its confessing membership does not have the ability to look into the heart. We cannot look into the heart. 
We do not have special x-rays that can look and to see which one of these has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which one of these possesses true faith, which one of these possesses true repentance. We look at the externals. Do they confess to have fled into Christ? Is there something of a godly walk in true daily repentance? Such as we are capable of discerning these external fruits, we give what is called a judgment of charity. A judgment of charity. That we esteem those who have such marks as much as we can discern to be the true sons and daughters of God, those who are truly saved. But always understood with that, always understood is there can be those who, for family reasons, or those because of confusion about what constitutes sound conversion, or those who, for whatever reason, find it advantageous to join themselves unto a Christian church, can nevertheless lack, lack that genuine conversion unto Christ. And so we may not be aware of it, even those closest to you and your family, even your own spouse may not be aware of it. But here is the great and terrible truth that is before us. God is aware of it. God is aware of it. You cannot deceive God. You cannot hide from him his searching eyes upon you. And so he is aware, aware of each and every time, each and every sermon, each and every gospel message which you have taken and shredded as a piece of junk mail. Each and every opportunity to plead for deliverance from the wrath to come. Each and every sweet and loving invitation from the Son of God himself has been despised. And so we sit here this morning and there you are, unconverted an awful thing an awful thing that God doesn't regard dispassionately he does not regard with disinterest but he regards in his wrath God is angry he is very angry with those who despise his gospel consider the terrible condition In the second place, the terrible condition of gospel despisers. It's it's an awful thing to think. But this condition of the ones who despise his gospel, you, my unconverted friend, it is a most terrible condition because you are guilty of the worst of offenses. The worst of offenses. I'm heard this illustration from a preacher recently that I was listening to. If you would consider a a child that is out playing and they were to take a magnifying glass and begin to incinerate a little ant or a little bug, surely you would say, well, that's that's wrong. That's wrong. You shouldn't just be uh, inflicting pain on one of God's creatures. Don't be that way. You would stop it. Or suppose 
They were torturing a, a larger animal, like a mouse or a squirrel or a cat. You would say, that's, that's appalling. Don't do that. There's no need to do that to one of God's creatures. Suppose they found that they were abusing and hurting another child, another human being. Suddenly it becomes even more serious, even more dreadful. It must be dealt with. It must be stopped. But what have we to say about one who would offend and hurt not a mere creature, but the very God of the universe? This one who is infinite in glory and power, my, the one who has made you, the one whose very majesty defies description, for he possesses all perfection in and of himself, and all things are from him and for him and to him, the greatest of sins. But if we would go further, we would surely say that the greatest of sins which can be committed against God is the despising of the gospel. Despising of the gospel, the greatest of offenses, the greatest of sins. Consider this parable with me once more. Here is the king. He is not the equal of his subjects, but one who is greater in the offenses against him personally. He extended a loving invitation. He extended a, something that was intended for the good of his subjects. And in that moment, he sees that it is despised and it fills him with rage. Consider this as well. It's not just against the king, but against his son. Against his son. Some of you may have, have sons. Can you imagine if someone were to hurt your son or to offend your son or, or insult your son? Surely that would be enough that you would rise in righteous indignation and protect the one that you love. But here is the very son of God, the fairest of 10,000, eternally in the bosom of his father. And he has come in the fullness of time. And he, as the very incarnate God-man, has all perfection and loveliness and beauty that he should be desired. God looked upon his son and said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The very single one who has ever lived, to whom God looked upon and saw Nothing but that which was to be delighted in. Here is the wedding banquet of the king's son. And we know as we compare scripture with scripture that this son of the king did not acquire this wedding and this banquet without great cost. Without great cost. Surely those who are married, those who have pursued a wife, have sought our wife because we loved her, we desired her, we delighted in her, and we would want her as our very own to love and to cherish and protect. One who would desire a good wife must seek her, must find her, must woo her. And here is a son, a bridegroom, who has purchased his bride at such great cost, 
such great cost. His sufferings, his agonies, his death, his perfect obedience, all that he ever did, he did with this single purpose of redeeming his precious bride unto himself, the precious bride of the church. And here, this as well is despised with all that Christ ever did for his church and all that he will ever do for her. It is despised and trampled underfoot by the one who despises the gospel. Oh, do you see it? Do you see it? All that ever has been has been working up to this final climactic purpose, the salvation of God's elect in Christ Jesus. For this, the very Son of God shed his blood, and you who are unconverted, you trample his blood underfoot treating it as a common thing, the greatest of offenses, the greatest of sins. And so it is that this condition is also that which brings about the greatest danger. The greatest danger. Was it not the Lord Jesus himself who said that all manner of sins will be forgiven? except for one, and that was the sin against the Holy Spirit. The sin against the Holy Spirit, what is that? Well, it is that where the gospel of Christ is so revealed that the Holy Spirit, through his operations, brings some awareness of the truth of the gospel. He comes so very close such that you begin to taste something of the delicacies and the wonder of that. But there is this ultimate difference that it is quenched, it is despised. And so the heart and the soul draw back. And so the heart becomes hardened in unbelief. And that state of unbelief, that state of having spurned and despised, the Son of God brings you to a place where finally God withdraws his overtures of mercy and you are left unto yourself. A terrible danger, a sin against the Holy Spirit. But even if you fall short of that, you never commit that sin. Yet we can say that however much you have been exposed to gospel preaching, however much you have, have heard something of these things, you will have to answer for it. Each and every sermon, each and every invitation, each and everything that you had heard, you will have to answer before the Lord. So it is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. If it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obeyed not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? John 3, verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. 
Or perhaps you think of that passage that we read from Deuteronomy 29. There you had the, uh, the word of God preached through Moses, and he addressed that great assembly. And you remember, don't you, that he spoke particularly of those who, amidst that mixed multitude, would speak peace unto themselves. Peace unto themselves. Not peace spoken to them by God, but peace to themselves. And he spoke this terrifying warning in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18. 